The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you're getting settled, let's, um, let's do a little exercise in imagination, all right? However you like to imagine things, you'd like to close your eyes or whatever, go for it. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine, if you can, living as one of God's people in a place, in a land that is ruled by a truly unstable leader. A leader who demonstrates an instability emotionally, demonstrates an instability mentally, and maybe even demonstrates an instability politically. Imagine yourself, if you can, as one of God's people living in a land like this with a leader who, who views himself not only as honestly above everyone else, but quite literally above the law itself. A leader who would demand that all people under his rule fear him and obey him while at the strange time somehow trying to find a way to like him. Imagine, if you can, a, a time when, when this ruler saw people as objects to be used for his gain, for his pleasure. A land and an empire ruled by a leader like this would make living in that empire as a minority, maybe even living in that empire as a woman or, or living in that empire as someone who disagreed with that leader as a pretty unsafe and precarious place to be. Yet on the surface, if you can imagine it, Life in that land might actually be okay. Keep your head down. You may even be able to enjoy the spoils of the empire. Keep your head down. You might actually be able to do well for yourself and actually get ahead. Resistance to this kind of leadership would be futile anyway, right? The Japanese have a, a great saying for it. The, the nail that sticks out above the rest is the one that gets hammered, right? Keep yourself where it needs to be and it might work out well for you. This leader is so unpredictable, you don't want to draw attention to yourself anyway. But as one of God's people living in a strange land as an alien or a sojourner in such a, a land like this, you may find yourself at different times thinking, I thought it was supposed to be different for God's people. I didn't think things were supposed to turn out quite like this. And if you look around at all the things that are happening, you might even find yourself wondering if God really cared about it at all. Because the crazy train just keeps chugging on down the track. Now, if you can begin to even remotely imagine living as God's people in a situation like that, you're going to be able to put yourself smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament book of Esther. Because this is exactly the kind of scenario that God's people find themselves in there. And so starting this morning, all the way through Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, we're going to spend our time looking at this fantastic story in God's word. So if you've got your Bibles, make your way to the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that are on the trays behind each section of chairs. I don't think it's going to come up on the screen this morning. The projector is not playing nice with us today. So we're actually going to use our Bibles. Go figure. And if you don't want to do that, I'll still read it to you. 
But the book of Esther is far more relevant and contemporary than you might realize. The book of Esther takes us into a time when some of God's people lived as exiles, as strangers, as sojourners in a foreign land and teetered on the edge of assimilation into that land and at the same time teetered on the edge of despair and destruction at the whims of a leader's instability. And in the book of Esther, if you've ever read it, you may remember, there are no overt miracles for God's people at this point. There are no seas that are going to part, no plagues that are going to come down against the enemies of God, no walls that are going to miraculously fall for God's people in these places. In fact, God is not overtly mentioned by name anywhere in the entire book. But that's part of its power, and we'll, we'll get to that in due time. So this morning, Rather than taking an entire week of just setting up all of the, the context around the book, we're just going to jump right into chapter one because the writer of Esther does a phenomenal job for us of that very thing. So if you found it now, I've kept talking. Esther chapter one, we're going to begin with verse one, and we're going to get a snapshot of, of the beginnings of this story and a picture of the situation that God's people find themselves in, though yet in this story, you'll see God's people are not yet mentioned. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the, uh, 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 I've said that like 400 times in three services now. The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now we're going to stop there and just get a, a picture of who we're talking about, what we're talking about, what's going on here as the writer is setting the stage for the story. We are talking here about someone you're far more familiar with than you might realize. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew translation of his name. This is actually the Persian king Xerxes. The majority of you have probably heard of Xerxes. You may not admit it, but this is the Persian king of the movie 300. You don't have to say that you've seen it. This is him. This Xerxes was the son of the Persian king Darius. At 32 years old, the kingdom of his father, the largest empire in the known world at the time, was handed to him. And the writer of the book of Esther tells us that we are meeting him now in the third year of his reign. So we are talking about a 35-year-old leader of the largest empire in the entire world who quite literally had the entire world given to him. The empire of the Persian kingdom at this time was roughly the square mileage of the entire United States. It stretched in that day to what we know as modern-day Sudan over to Pakistan and up to Greece. The Persian kingdom of Xerxes' days made tremendous contributions historically to architecture, to art, to literature. They created the precursor to what you and I know as the modern-day postal system. And that's going to come into play, believe it or not, later on in, in chapter 1. The writer of the book of Esther tells us we find this 35-year-old man who has had the entire world 
given to him at his feet. This empire encompassed all of the known world at that time. And he's in his palace or his citadel in Susa, which is one of his four capital cities. Susa was his summer home. It's in modern day Iran. He's in a citadel, which literally means high place. So in Susa, he had his palace built on the highest place in the land. And the writer is mentioning this specifically because a picture is being painted that I'm going to keep pointing out because it's going to be important for the story. Quite literally, he would sit in his palace in Susa, overlooking the vast expanse of his empire, looking down on everyone else that was under his rule while they lived their life toiling for the empire, looking up into the heavens at him. And the writer tells us while he's sitting in his citadel, he is on his throne, which oddly enough, historians record as one of the most magnificent works of art of this time. It was massive in size. Historians argue as to whether or not the accuracy of the details are there, but he would have sat some three to five feet higher than anyone else who would have come into his presence at the time. And here's the picture. Xerxes, seated on his throne, high and above everyone else, looking out on those below. It was a godlike picture, which is fitting because the Persian kings believed themselves to be gods dare to come into his throne room and sit on his throne, you're dead. Come into his throne room and even touch his throne, dead. Dare to come into his throne room and not bow before him as king of kings, dead. So important was this throne to Xerxes' leadership that when his armies would go out into battle, he had a particular group of men who were charged with carrying him out into that battle, seating him at the highest point where that battle was being fought in his throne so that he could look out across his empire expanding. Xerxes had quite an army at his disposal. The writer of Esther tells us that the armies of Media and Persia were gathered here at this celebration, this party that he's throwing. Certainly Xerxes, as the leader of the Persian Empire, would have consolidated all the armies and fighting forces of the lands that he had conquered. But Xerxes had done something particular at this time. Xerxes had commissioned his own private security army for his own protection and for his own whim. He had 10,000 men commissioned as what history records as the immortals. Again, you don't have to admit it if you've seen the movie, but you see him in the movie. The immortals, their only task was to guard Xerxes, to do for him whatever he commanded. And with these 10,000 immortals came 2,000 swordsmen, 2,000 spearsmen basically, and 2,000 archers. So 14,000 of the most highly trained fighters in the entire empire for nothing but his own protection and his own whim. So tomorrow, when the news of all the events and the parties and things that went on over the weekend come out on the channels and you see all of the entourages making their way through LA and all the things, Xerxes' entourage quite literally could fill a stadium, 14,000 people, just for his own protection. And they're all here. And what does he do with all of this power? What does he do with all of this resource what does he do with quite literally the whole world being given to him in his hands? Does he make sure that every head in his empire has a place to lay down at night? 
Does he make sure that every mouth and stomach in his empire has food to feed it? Does he make sure that, that every child who loses a father, loses a mother through battle or through attrition had a home to be a part of? Does he feed the hungry, care for the orphan and the widow? We find him rather throwing a party. 180 days worth of party. And for you mathematicians, that's six months. Now, most scholars who have studied the Persian Empire and studied Xerxes' reign, and they read this story in the book of Esther, and they say that it correlates over the time in Xerxes' rule when he was building a war council to go to war against Greece. Because you see, Xerxes became the leader of the Persian Empire because his dad tried to defeat Athens, and it didn't work, and he didn't make it. So Xerxes becomes the leader of the Persian Empire, and Xerxes is looking at the, the kingdom and the ruler that defeated his dad and is going to exact revenge. So in order to get a yes and participation from all of the nations that he has conquered and all of their leaders and all of their militaries that are under his control, in, er, in order to curry their favor, he invites them down to his summer house, and he throws a 180-day party. He wants them to see just how great it is to be on his team. It's good to be Xerxes. It's good to be with me. And so for 180 days, they go at it. And that's not it. Look at verse five. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the guard of the king's palace. So after six months of tens of thousands of the most influential people in the entire empire spending day and night in a feast and a party with King Xerxes in his cabinet, he opens up the party to everybody else around. So all of the common men who have been working at the foot of Susa, at the foot of the citadel, slaving day in and day out for his empire to grow, he, they basically get a week off of work to come into the palace and celebrate what their tax dollars have afforded. Because they've paid for the party. Don't miss that. Everybody gets to come and celebrate. And when they get there, just imagine their response. Imagine how they would have felt. They walk in and there are white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. They look around and there are couches made of gold and silver. And gold and silver couches are sitting on mosaic pavements of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. The minute they come in, through the entire seven days that they're there, they're given drinks served in golden vessels. Vessels of all different kinds because it was known in that day that no two golden goblets in the Persian empire were alike. They were like snowflakes. There were that many. And royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And while he's throwing this party over here, and we've extended beyond six months now into the next week, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. And the question the listener and the reader is left with at this point, we'll stop here for a minute and begin to think about it together, is simply this. Are you impressed yet? 
That's the question. Are you impressed yet? That's the point of the party from Xerxes' perspective. The whole point was to impress the empire. It's good to be with me. His intent was to wow everyone that would come in so that he could get them to do exactly what he wanted them to do. And one commentator said this about what we've already read. He said, there is in all of these elaborate descriptions a characterization forming of the king. He's portrayed as someone who has extravagant wealth, unlimited power, and unrivaled pretensions. Noblemen, military officials, wineries, stonemasons, interior decorators, furniture craftsmen, they're all under his command. The wealth of the kingdom is at his disposal, and he thinks nothing of lavishly parading it in front of those who are under him. Why? It's not as simple as trying to curry the favor of all of these people to go to war against Athens. There's a deeper reason to why he does what he does the way that he does it. We get a clue to it back in verse four. In verse four, the writer of Esther says this, Xerxes showed the riches of his royal what? What's the next word? Glory. Xerxes was showing off his glory. For Xerxes, it was all about glory. Come and see the splendor of the king. Come and see the majesty of the king, seated high above on a throne, exalted. Before him, people of all tribes, tongues, and nations, marveling at my greatness, enjoying the feasts of my own provision. Somebody say something about me so I don't have to talk about myself. That's Xerxes. It's all about glory. And the writer of Esther is starting the story off this way intentionally. You see, here's the irony of the whole thing. By the time the book of Esther is actually written, it's 10 years after Xerxes has been defeated in battle and his empire completely sacked. We know from historians they found all these things. Gold and silver sofas, all the goblets, all the bullion he had, he had curried and all the expansion of his empire. He gets sacked. He loses his empire before this is ever written. So the writer of Esther could have started the story off in the days of King Xerxes, whose empire was conquered, whose kingdom was sacked. But they didn't. Because there's something else they're intending for their listener and the reader to think there's something else they're intending for the listener and the reader to begin to see as the story unfolds. Questions like this, who alone deserves such glory? Whose kingdom is really everlasting? These are the questions that the writer is intending to unfold throughout the entire story. And as you and I begin to read, even as we begin to read in chapter one, it's very easy to separate ourselves from what we're reading, getting caught up in the narrative, thinking about the history, finding all of those things and missing the connections to our own reality. So let's stop for just a minute before we keep reading and let's just consider this. One of the things that God is helping his people by his grace begin to discover really confront us with as we read this story and listen and allow his spirit to work is simply this. There is something inside every single one of our hearts that loves verses one through nine. 
You might sit there and find yourself mildly repulsed or disgusted by what he does with all of his power and with all of his wealth, what he doesn't do with those things, but there's a part of your heart that reads it and wants it, that loves it. And it would be a great disservice to what God is doing for his people through this story for us to not at least be honest with ourselves for just a minute. I mean, just ask yourself this. If you're willing to be honest with yourself for even a moment, ask yourself this and try to be honest. Ask God to help you with it. Help help you in a moment to be honest. What do you think you would really do if you had his resources at your disposal? Before you condemn him and get off on getting mad at him, what would you do? Would you make sure every mouth had food and every head had a place to lay down at night? Every orphan had a home, every widow was taken care of? I mean, let's be honest. When it comes to our wealth and globally, we are all wealthy in this room. Don't take yourself out of this sentence. When it comes to our wealth, We all love to use our wealth to show off our glory. We're not much different than Xerxes. It's why sometimes we find ourselves getting caught up trying to buy particular cars that our heart wants. It's not because it can get us from point A to point B any better than the other one. It's because while going from point A to point B, people riding by us or that we drive by will look at us and go, man, I wish I was him or her. That's why we find ourselves getting caught up at times looking at houses and neighborhoods because we've convinced ourselves we need whatever thing it holds out. Not because it has any better shelter than any other place, but it's because as people come up to it, man, look at what they've been able to accomplish. Whew, man. That's why we find ourselves sometimes buying the clothes that we do and chasing the bodies that we chase. Because we want people to see us and go, wow, look at that glory. Friends, the only real difference at the bottom line between Xerxes and you and I in this is the amount of disposable income we're talking about. That's really it. Circumstances may change. 21st century versus the Persian Empire, but the human heart has not changed since then. There is something that each and every single one of our hearts craves just like his, and that's glory. The only difference are the means that we have available to us. And so as we read, even in chapter one, the beginnings of the story, the scene being set, God is doing a gracious work in the hearts of his people by his spirit if we just listen. He's helping us to not find ourselves casting men like Xerxes off too quick because as we pass judgment on him, realize we're passing judgment on the same thing in our own hearts. Part of what God is going to do through this story is expose the futility of these things for his people. Because while the circumstances may have changed, the human heart hasn't. 
the wealth, the power, the extravagance we read in the first nine verses. Friends, none of our hearts are completely immune to the call of these false things, these idols. They promise life, but ultimately can only deliver death. I've said it around here before, I'll say it again. We are as guilty of Xerxes and people from all of time after the garden of finding ourselves susceptible to shiny object syndrome. We're no smarter at heart than the fish in the pond that chases the lure with the shiny thing on it. I gotta get it, I gotta get it, paying no attention to the hook behind that thing, ready to lead it to its own destruction. Friends, the shine wears off and we're left with empty promises. False idols are never able to deliver. Chase glory, go for it. Go after the house, the car, the clothes, the body, the thing that make people around you go, wow, man, I wish I was them. Fix everything on the outside to get all the glory magnified that you're looking at. But here's the thing, nothing on the inside has changed. All of those things are still promising, something they can never deliver. But again, we'll be honest, they feel so compelling in the beginning, don't they? This is what we're seeing in the first nine verses. Here is a man who has been able to obtain everything that parts of our heart desperately want. Look at me. And yet we'll see, he's not quite as in control as he thinks. Verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, it's a pretty kind way to talk about him after six months, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now listen, when you read Queen Vashti, do not think British royal family Queen Vashti was not a queen in the sense that she had any real influence or political clout in the empire at all. Queen Vashti in the eyes and heart of King Xerxes was no different than the golden couch or the silver couch or the marble pillars. She was purely an object to be used for his pleasure and his glory. And you see it come to fruition at its height right here. After six months of drunken partying and seven days of bringing every man in the kingdom into his palace to drink at, no, at their compulsion, he calls for his wife to be brought out and paraded in front of them. You think you've seen everything I've got? You haven't seen everything yet. This is how he views Queen Vashti, as an item to be used for his pleasure and his glory. And in those days, even for a woman in a situation like Vashti's, it was not common or normal at all for the king to command such a thing to be done by the queen, even though she had no power in the kingdom. This was something that would have only happened with a concubine. But here he is commanding it of the queen. And scholars are 
Well, the jury's out on just what all this command entailed, whether or not it meant she was clothed or not. But when she hears this command, and it's brought to her by these eunuchs from her husband, the king, Vashti does something that no one in the empire does. She said no. No one says no to the king. So here he is in the end of this party, six months, trying to build favor with all of these leaders and all of these people, showing off his glory so that when he begins to rally the empire to go to war against the one place that defeated them before, his father, he commands his wife to do something in his mind that seems as simple as coming and being paraded in front of these men, and she says no. And he gets infuriated. Watch what happens. The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him, being the seven princes of Persia and Media, I'm not going to go through all those names right now, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So a marital matter between King Xerxes and Queen Vashti is being brought into the legal realm now because here's the thing, there was no precedent on the books in the Persian Empire for any kind of behavior like this because no one said no to the king. And watch what happens. Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but listen to this, she's done wrong against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of the king. Her behavior has threatened the empire, basically. Why? Why has it been so bad? Verse 17, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Mamukin's like, listen, I got a wife back home. If she hears about what your wife did to you and you're the king of Persia, it's not gonna go well for me. And it's not going to go well for the rest of the princes and the nobles. So Mamukin has taken this thing and now made it an empire-wide issue. And now the writer of Esther is going to pull back the curtain for us a bit on the instability and the, well, what's the best way to say it? The um, deficient nature of political savvy on the part of Xerxes and his cabinet. If it pleases the king, verse 19, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. Like constitutional amendment here, right? Put this thing in there and it'll never go away. That Vashti, no longer Queen Vashti. Now from a writer's perspective, that's very important. I won't try to point out every detail, but from a writer's perspective, he's letting you know something right here. Up until this point, it's always been Queen Vashti. Now it's just Vashti. 
It's kind of letting you in on the fact that this really isn't a marital issue in the story and the point. It's a power issue. It's something much bigger than just that. So now she's just Vashti. Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So he's setting up something that we're supposed to be looking for down the road in the story. But here's the wisdom of the king and his cabinet. Vashti refused to come into the presence of the king when she was called. So let's punish her. You can't come into the presence of the king anymore. That'll fix it. When the decree is made by the king and is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it's vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. Ah, you couldn't get your wife to do what you asked her to do. So here's what we'll do. We'll make a law commanding every woman in the empire to do exactly what we say. That will work, right? Hmm. Verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princess. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, here's the postal system, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Just let that sink in for a second. The greatest threat to the empire is if the women of the empire hear what Vashti has done. Because if they hear what Vashti has done, then they're going to treat their husbands with contempt and the empire is going to shake. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to let her come into the presence of the king like she wanted. And then we're going to tell every woman in the empire in her own language exactly what Vashti's done. Well, that sounds smart. Could you imagine these guys if they had Twitter at midnight? It's crazy. You don't have to imagine. And Xerxes was fine with it. That sounds smart. One historian writing about Xerxes and his leadership said that Xerxes was known for drinking too much and thinking too little. And then this, that's exactly what the writer of Esther is trying to help us to see. The stage is being set for a drama that is going to unfold where God's people who have not yet been mentioned are living as strangers and aliens in a land that is being led and ruled by an unstable king. A king who is in the process of buying for himself the support and the power that he desperately wants while he seeks and displays a, a glory that is not his. And as we read and begin to think, we have to begin to consider what even in something like this, like a, a chapter like this that is just setting the stage, what, what is it that God has for his people? What is it that he has for us, for our lives, for our hearts, even as we read this, lest we separate ourselves too far again? One of the things that God is going to do through this book, and he's even starting the process now, just in chapter one, is that God is helping us to see that the kingdoms of this world the empires of this world, they're just shiny holograms 
In the end, they are empty of any real power and substance. And the book of Esther is going to help us over and over again, even as it does in the beginning here in chapter one, to see just how easily our hearts get dazzled by the shiny kingdoms. Just how easy it is in our hearts to get distracted by the shiny lure, not paying attention to the hook that sits behind it. The book of Esther will help us to see that the kingdoms of this world and all the promises that they hold out, man, they're just holograms. They can't deliver what they promise. And in the end, there really is no substance to them. And man, they take themselves so seriously. This world takes its quest for power and wealth and beauty so seriously. One of the things that God does by his grace through the story of Esther for his people, even now living as aliens and strangers, sojourners in another land, looking for another kingdom to come, is to realize, man, we don't need to take the kingdoms of this world quite so seriously. And God helps us to see over and over again where in our hearts we find ourselves so susceptible to it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And that's what Xerxes had, the whole world given to him at his fingertips. What does it profit a man to chase after a glory like this? What does it profit a man to chase after the shiny objects of the kingdom of this world if only to bite the hook and forfeit his own soul? The book of Esther, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, is going to help us to see this over and over and over again. That you and I, by the grace of God, for all who have believed upon Jesus Christ, who have faith in him, have been brought into a different kingdom. We are living for a different kingdom that is made up of an altogether different substance and value. And one thing that's going to happen throughout the entire book, and it starts right here in chapter 1, you may not see it directly, but it starts right here. The writer of Esther is going to make an ongoing comparison throughout the entire story between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Xerxes, the kingdom of this world, and the kingdom of God. In the minds and the hearts of God's people, as they would hear this story, as they would read this story, they were meant to be seeing and hearing a comparison between what the world has to hold out and who God is and what he has done and what he's called us into. I mean, even in chapter one, it's starting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's, no, there's only two other places in the Bible, two other architectural structures in the Bible that are given as much detail as the palace, the citadel, the party that we see here in Esther chapter one. Do you know what they are? The tabernacle and the temple. And that's intentional on the writer's part because he's beginning to draw a contrast. He's beginning to set two things up against each other. He's beginning to compare the kingdoms of God and the kingdoms of this world. One commentator said Xerxes may appear to sit atop of the world he may be able with the snap of a finger to engage a vast and efficient bureaucratic machine. He may have the world's strongest military. He may possess the most advanced communication system which he can use at will for his own petty purposes. 
But the one thing that becomes painfully clear in this episode is that he is not nearly as in control as he might think he is. The subtle point of the whole thing is that ultimately Xerxes is not really the king of the world after all. God is. And God is the one who truly sits on the throne. As you read in chapter one of Xerxes, opening up his palace, opening up his citadel, inviting the peoples of his empire, very tribe, tongue, and nation that he leads, that he controls into his presence to feast in his presence of his own lavish riches and his own lavish banquets. You're meant to hear of something else in your mind. You're meant to hear another promise that's been made to God's people. You're meant to compare the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of Xerxes and this great invitation to another invitation that's been given. An invitation from another king into his presence where his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will feast with him for all of eternity and share in and live in the riches and the bounty of his kingdom. Yet when this king When this king calls his bride into his presence, when this king calls out for his bride to come into his banquet to be with him, he doesn't do it to shame her. He doesn't do it to objectify her. He doesn't do it to use her. King Jesus calls his bride, the church, into his presence for all of eternity to lavish his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness and his joy on her forever and so as you read the story it may seem wise in your mind for queen vashti to reject the offer the call of king xerxes to come into his presence into his banquet and to be paraded around in front of those men for his glory but it would be the height of foolishness for you and i to hear the call of our king king jesus to come to him to come into his presence to be called into his eternal banquet with him. It would be the height of foolishness for us to hear his call to us and for us to say no. Because to say no to such a call from King Jesus would be to be banished from his presence forever. Friends, you are being called by the grace of God to an altogether different kingdom in the presence of an altogether different king to spend eternity enjoying the spoils of an altogether different kingdom and to eat of a feast of an altogether different kind. You and I are being called by God to feast for eternity with the king of kings who unlike King Xerxes, who unlike the kings of this world, who unlike the kingdoms of our own making don't see people as objects to be used but we're being called into an eternal banquet, an eternal presence of the King of Kings who laid down his life for us while we were on an unending quest to steal his glory from him. While you and I were dead in sins and transgressions, Paul said, while you and I were hell-bent on a pursuit for our own glory, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords laid down his life on the cross to pay the price for our foolish pursuit of his glory for our sins and transgressions. You and I, everything we have 
even the righteousness necessary to come into the presence of God, invited to this eternal banquet, invited to this eternal peace, even the righteousness required comes to us as a gift from this king. And oh, the riches of this kingdom. Oh, the eternal bounty of this kingdom that he shares freely with all of his people. Why then would we not, just like he says, come boldly, rush boldly into his throne room of grace? Come into his throne room, it's not death. Come into his throne room, from his hands come life and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Friends, this morning we we get the chance together to respond to God's word. And one of the ways that we respond to God's word as followers of God, as as citizens of his kingdom, is by receiving communion together. And this morning, after we take a couple of minutes to simply reflect in silence on God's word, to pray, to allow him to speak to us again through his word, after a couple of minutes of reflection, you're going to hear a call to come forward for all who have believed upon Jesus for all whose faith is in Jesus as King and Kings of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you're going to hear a call to come forward. And this morning, I want you to hear it as the gracious call of God to come into His presence through the broken body and the shed blood of His Son, our King, a King who, unlike Xerxes, is not dead, but defeated death, and is alive, and is seated on a throne at the right hand of the Father. Friends, today is a day of celebration. By the grace of God, for all who have believed upon Jesus, we are reminded that we are citizens of a greater kingdom. That by the hands of our king, we have received a greater gift. We're looking forward to a greater blessing on the day we gather in his name, in his presence, for his glory for all of eternity. Friends, we're reminded again, even in the beginning of the book of Esther, that Jesus is our great king. And he's a better king than any king and every king who will ever live. And you can come to him. You can come to him this morning and receive grace and forgiveness and peace from him forever. So the writer of Esther is setting us up The writer intends for us to be asking ourselves, who is the real king who has captured your heart? Which kingdom and for which king do you and I find ourselves living for? The empires, the kingdoms of our own creation will leave us in nothing but a tireless quest to steal a glory that God freely shares for all of eternity with those who are his. Friends, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. His kingdom is everlasting and he invites us into it for our joy and his glory. This morning we are going to celebrate him. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to allow you to have a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word, to respond to him and then you're going to hear the invitation 
the call for those who have believed upon Jesus to come and be reminded of his sacrifice, his death in our place for our sins, but God's eternal call to his people into his presence for all of eternity, our participation in a kingdom that knows no end. So let me pray and then we'll respond together. Jesus, even this morning as we read this story and and come face to face with the reality of, of who you are, even now, we see you highly exalted. We see you now seated on your throne, ruling and reigning over all peoples and all nations and all languages and all times and in all places. And we acknowledge in our hearts, we acknowledge with our mouths, we acknowledge with our lives that you and you alone are worthy of all the glory. Lord, even this morning, we look forward to the day when what we are believing by faith, the gift that you have given us, the faith to believe in you. We look forward to the day when you return and you bring us into your presence and what we believe by faith becomes sight. Lord, we'll see you with your people, standing amongst your people. We'll see you that day in other times seated on your throne. So we gather with you to enjoy your presence forever. Lord, help us even in the meantime until that day comes when you return. Do the work by your spirit in our hearts of helping us to see all the shiny objects that hold out so many promises but offer only death. Help us to see, to taste, and to enjoy the reality of a greater kingdom. Even now as we live as sojourners and aliens, Lord, help us to await with anticipation and eagerness that which is to come as we enjoy the presence of your spirit in us and amongst us even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.